I'm Esther Armour. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air internationally across the United States, here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, trials, traumas and tribulations, injustice and brutality in America. In part one, from Philando Castile to Charlena Lyles, they are two of the 451 people killed by police so far this year. In part two, Bill Cosby, 50 plus women accused him of rape. The jury deadlocked. The judge called it a mistrial. And, say some, he's off on tour, a town hall tour about sexual assault prevention. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Brittany Cooper and Monica Dennis. Dr. Brittany Cooper is a scholar, writer and public intellectual. Dr. Cooper is Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Her latest two books are The Crunk Feminist Collection, together with Susanna Morris and Robin M. Boylorn, and Beyond Respectability, the Intellectual Thought of Race Women. Her writing has been published in Salon.com and currently in Cosmo.com. Monica Dennis is co-founder of the Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute, an organization committed to developing and supporting the leadership of black girls and their families. She's currently a thought leader and faculty member with the Novo Foundation's Move to End Violence Initiative and Core Alliance Speaking Race to Power and Generative Fellowships. Monica Dennis leads a consulting practice that provides training, coaching, strategic planning and leadership development to organizations and communities committed to racial justice and equity. Monica is an organizer with Black Lives Matter New York City, an international organizing network focused on combating anti-blackness in all of its forms. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Trials, traumas and tribulations, injustice and police brutality in America. In the United States, y'all hold these truths to be self-evident. That even when you're in a car, wearing a seatbelt, reaching for your ID as asked, while carrying a legal weapon for which you have a permit in an open carry state, a black man will be fatally shot in front of his girlfriend and daughter by the police. Philando Castile. Take a listen to what happened. You have a license insurance? I do have a okay. firearm on okay. me. Don't reach for it, then. Don't pull it out. Don't pull it out. You just killed my boy. Oh, that wasn't me. He wasn't me. Don't pull it out. He wasn't. Go, boy. Oh, man, I can't see you. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Go, boy. Get the baby girl out of here! 
And then a jury will see that video and they will acquit that police officer of said shooting. That is what happened in the trial of Officer Geronimo Yanez, who fired four shots into that car. Here's Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show, expressing disbelief what so many millions felt after watching the additional video released just days after the acquittal. Are we all watching the same video? The video where a law-abiding man followed the officer's instructions to the letter of the law and was killed regardless? People watched that video and then voted to acquit? And the saddest thing is that wasn't the only video that they watched. You told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. You shot four bullets into him, sir. You shot four bullets into him, sir. It's f***ing mind-blowing that Diamond Reynolds has just seen her boyfriend shot in front of her. She still has the presence of mind to be deferential to the policeman. In that moment, the cop has panicked, but clearly black people never forget their training. Still in that moment, the black person is saying, sir, I respect you, sir. I understand what I need to do, sir. The same thing Philando Castile did. But still, according to the law, the jury had to make a decision. And that decision is, do you think this policeman was justified in thinking that his life was in danger? And their opinion, having watched that video, having listened to that exchange, they still said yes. Yes, I can see why that cop was afraid. But why? Let's be honest, just why? Why would you say he was afraid? Was it because Philando Castillo was being polite? Was it because he was following the officer's instructions? Was it because he was in the car with his family? Or was it because Philando Castillo was black? Trevor Noah there. Philando's mother, Valerie Castillo, responded to the verdict, reminding the waiting media and the watching world that America's justice system was fragmented, broken, and failing black people. The system continues to fail black people, and they will continue to fail you all. I am so disappointed in the state of Minnesota. My son loved this state. He had one tattoo on his body, and it was of the Twin Cities, the state of Minnesota with TC on it. My son loved this city, and this city killed my son and the murderer gets away. Are you kidding me right now? What is it gonna take? I'm mad as hell right now, yes I am. My first born one son died here in Minnesota. Under the circumstances, just because he was a police officer, that makes it okay. Oh, now they got free reign. He's found innocent on all counts. He shot into a car with no regard to human life. Philando Castile's mama there, his younger sister, Eliza Castile, told the world how precious her brother was to her. I know my brother. My brother would never, ever put Diamond in danger or Dayan in danger because he loved that little girl. And he loved this state and I'm really just so hurt because y'all took away, he took away something so precious for me. That was my brother, that was my mentor, that was my father figure, that was everything. That man worked hard every single day, every birthday, every Christmas. He was the one that made sure I had gifts. He didn't deserve to die the way he did. For them jurors to not have enough human empathy and a conscience 
to just do the right thing, that just baffles me. So the city of St. Anthony, where Philando lived in Minnesota, just made a $3 million settlement to his mother, Valerie. Just days earlier in Milwaukee, in another high-profile prosecution, an officer was on trial, charged with first-degree reckless homicide after killing unarmed Silville Smith, a 24-year-old black man. The jury acquitted him. Just last month in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Officer Betty Shelby was on trial for the killing of an unarmed black man, Terrence Kutcher. The jury acquitted her. Just two days after the Philando Castile trial acquittal, Charlena Stiles in Seattle would lose her life in front of her children to the bullets from a police officer's weapon. Charlena was a black woman, a mother of four young children, pregnant with her fifth. She was dealing with mental health issues. She was seeking safety from an abusive partner. She dialed 911 after a suspected burglary at her apartment. She was seeking help. The police showed up, claimed she confronted them. They shot and killed her. Her three young children, her babies, were in the house. Folk took to the streets in anger. Say her name! Say her name! Our community deems this to be murder. And we, in fact, expect the government to treat it as such. I appeal to you, regardless of your race, Let's stand together with Charlena's family. Charlena told me that she would make an impact on this world and she's doing that now. She's doing that right now. We need to bring pressure and put the spotlight on this city and state about the behavior of police officers here. Charlena Lyles is the 451st person to have been shot and killed by the police in 2017. And we're just halfway through the year. If we go global with the numbers, we learn through the Washington Post in the US and the Guardian in the UK, both of whom track the numbers of people killed by the police, that there were more fatal police shootings in the first 24 days of 2015 in the US than there were in the previous 24 years in England and Wales combined. So let's talk trials, traumas, and tribulations, injustice, and brutality in America. Monica Dennis, let me start with you. Your thoughts. It's just so overwhelming just to hear and to be faced with the numbers I'm sitting with, the impact of the acquittal, as well as the vicarious trauma. What does it mean for us to keep having to witness black death day in and day out and knowing that there is no response to it? And I'm also sitting with and really been reflecting on, as I think about Charlena Lyles in particular, the lack of responsiveness to the issues that black women in particular in the United States face that then lead to these cycles of black death. So we know that in her situation, as well as Philando Castile's, that there are a number of issues that are happening before we get to this point of this actual police violence that is happening. So just sitting with how black people are treated constantly on the day-to-day and that these spectacles of black death then become heightened. Dr. Brittany Cooper. I'm both infuriated and saddened, but also exhausted. They're killing black folks so quickly that it's hard to keep up with all of the names. I mean, we also lost Jordan Edwards earlier this summer in a shooting in Texas when he was trying to flee a party because there had been gunshots. And so the names of victims at this point are mixed up so that we can't even fully understand the stories of these individual victims. I think that the challenge is that I still want to believe 
that there is some notion of justice, that there is some reasonable thing that we can say to citizens in other parts of the country who are sitting on these juries that will compel them to see black folks as human. And what is really clear is that there is nothing that we can say, that there is no argument that can be made to prove another person's humanity to, to anyone. So that if, the, if their humanity is not conceded up front, then at the point that we have to make arguments for humanity, in many ways we've already lost the battle. And so then that leads to the question of where do we go from here? One of the things that I really loved about the Philando Castile moment, even though it was heart-wrenching, was his mother saying, I'm done, I'm tired. And she even said, I hope Officer Yanez dies tonight. Now, certainly morally, that might give us pause, but I'm happy that she is not a black woman who's doing this sort of stoic performance of a kind of quiet black grief, a kind of dignified black grief that we have come to expect from black women since the murder of Emmett Till in the 1950s. Instead, she said, look, I'm angry, and I don't care what y'all do. If you want to burn things down, burn them down, burn it down, shut it down, because this injustice has happened to my son, and there's literally no, no reasonable thing that I can tell you. Uh, and so we don't get to see Black mothers' rage show up in the public sphere in that way very often. And so I think it's really honest and important for Black women to be able to express their anger over injustice and to say, that there are actually other ways to support that aren't about peace all the time and aren't about nonviolence all the time. And even though I'm not an advocate for violent protest, part of what she's calling for, I think, and, and saying to, to black folks, however you choose to express your rage, I'm here for it, is that at some point we're going to have to realize who the violent actors actually are, and that even if those juries sat in the jury box and made their deliberations, and it seemed peaceful, what they did was to engage in a violent act of dehumanization and disrespect for black communities and shoring up a system that says that there is literally no way that black folks can be protected, even if they follow the law to a T. That is a violent stance, even if it looks peaceful on the surface, even if it looks like the rule of law and law and order. If that is the conclusion that is drawn from those proceedings, then we should see that as violent. And sometimes I think she's right to say that when Black folks react, they're responding to violence. They're not provoking violence themselves. I also think, Brittany, just hearing you say that and connecting it back to the vicarious trauma, like what does it mean for children to have to actually witness their parents being murdered at the hands of police? What does it mean for the destabilizing of an entire community that we can either become numb we can, from what's happening to us, the ways in which our mental health is being impacted, and that any response that's outside of something that's about peace or just be easy or let's pray about it is seen as the, the act of aggression when the act of aggression is coming from an American system. Really, all systems are involved in this that are perpetuating that violence consistently. And then there's just something to what does it mean to have to dismantle this myth that black people are hyper-criminal, hyper-violent, and hyper-sexual, and that's playing out all the time, and that that myth is what is under... It's undergirding all of this violence. It's a myth that's been since the inception of the United States, since the creation, and that all of our institutions are really formulating their laws, policies, and practices based upon those myths. So to kill people in front of their children, to kill people 
that will to have a court system that actually needs massive innovation. Because when you look at what some of the mandates are to the juries and, and several of these cases, it creates a situation sometimes where if the jury is following the letter of the law, they can only come to certain conclusions. So in addition to the reforming of criminal justice, the dismantling of these myths, we also have to be really looking at massive court innovation. And, you know, we have to say something as well about white fear and the way that it becomes a cloak for murdering black people. Even though Yanez does not seem, I think Yanez may be Latino, you know, there's a sort of white supremacist fear where officers can simply say, I fear for my life. That's the same thing that happens in the Shalina Lyles case, is that officers go and they're there to protect her. And because she lunges at them with a knife, they say, I fear for my life. So you're a police officer, you have the training of a police officer, you have a gun, another officer has a gun and a taser, and yet both of you feel like you can't win as police against a woman who is pregnant when you brought guns to what is a knife fight? It's completely absurd and ridiculous, right? But we continue to allow police to say this thing about fear, and the reality is that if they don't have a different sort of relationship to their fear than the general public has, then they shouldn't be the folks defending and protecting and serving because it turns out that, you know, they're continuing to use fear and they're supposed to be the folks that are fearless or the folks who can keep a cool head in the face of fear. And instead, we're allowing them to use fear to make black people monstrous. And and that is the thing that infuriates me. Black people are not scary. I mean, there may be some, some scary black people, but on the whole, continuing to sort of reinforce white people's narratives that we're scared of them. And because of our fear, our fear cannot be publicly adjudicated. Our fear is a pure category that's not shaped by racism or sexism. You know, our fear is a thing that justifies killing anybody uh, when we see fit, whether we're citizens like George Zimmerman who killed Trayvon Martin or we're cops who killed anybody from Tamir Rice to Charlena Lyles. I really think we got to interrogate this category of white fear because until we do, what they're doing with these juries is saying to them, essentially, you would you fear black people too, and so you understand and my suspicion. Exactly. And so then we get the reasonable man test, right? Well, a reasonable man would have feared a black person with a knife or a gun too. So you understand, you know, and, and then there is no, no accountability. What I've been keeping track of is not only how is media in the U.S. actually describing some of the incidences, right? So when Charlena Lyles, when the news first comes out about her, she is described as a suspect. When she actually called the police for help for an attempted burglary, right? And they already knew who she was. They already had on file that she was a woman with mental health issues. They already knew about her disability and that she's actually calling for help. And she had called previously for help around issues of domestic violence. But the news media is tracking and putting out stories around media in all cases, identifying her as a suspect, right? So again, how is it that someone who was calling for assistance from police is now identified as a suspect? And then also I've been tracking the number of news stories in everyday news, whether it's on social media, in newspapers, or on television, are actually starting to turn up and show different types of crimes being committed by black people. So now in the U.S., this has always been a case that when you hear about a crime, I know I'm sitting and watching like please don't let this be a black person that, you know, robbed an ATM or beat this person up or all of that. We've been tracking the numbers of how the news is increasing, which then 
feed and justify the angst and the irrational fear of black people, right? So they're committing all of these crimes. And then you have that juxtaposed to, we just had a mass shooting in Virginia where several folks that work for Congress were shot. We know what happened with Dylan Roof when he massacred nine people and at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. And both of those folks who are engaged in mass shootings, two white men were taken into custody alive both of them having high-powered rifles, having assault weapons, and multiple rounds of ammunition. The cops were able to take them into custody alive. So when police say that they can't disarm or they don't know how to approach black folks who are calling for actual help and support, it's just really, really irrational. And so I, I think we also have to be in tune with the ways that oppression tries to gaslight us into believing that the irrational is rational, that the illogical is logical. I think we're in a specific moment where part of our movement work, our global movement work, has to be about the relanguaging of violence to expand so that it includes these ways in which a jury can watch a video of a man with his partner and a baby in the back following specific orders, watch that person shoot four times in the car and conclude on the basis of what they saw that that was justifiable violence, that that was understandable and reasonable behavior. And so I truly believe that in terms of our resistance work, that part of the language of violence needs to expand because it's actually inadequate to fully describe all the multiple ways in which violence happens with this ongoing cycle roll call of name upon name upon name. I think there's something profound about not being able to recall which name, which killing, which state, which city, simply because there's literally a jumble of them. I also think this notion, of course, folks know that my work around emotional justice, and I've been thinking about what I call structural emotionality, as opposed to individual emotions. And that with structural emotionality, we have this racialized emotionality, both racialized and gendered. And so that within the structure of the police, which is a white supremacist structure, even if individuals working within it may be Latino or black, but the structure under which they work is white and supremacist, that they have cultivated this language where fear applies to the armed person trained to de-escalate any situation and threat has been applied to the person seeking help or being stopped or unarmed. There is literally a reversal of scenarios. And I truly believe we're in a moment where we need language to more accurately identify it because without that, we have these cyclical patterns of absolutely justified rage. And I think Part of that language is identifying the difference between violent protest and honest grief. Because if you actually even look at the American Psychological Association, where it talks about the stages of grief, anger is one of them. And so that if people of color, if black folk respond in anger, why is that not considered part of the natural grief of the loss of someone? Because we're a communal people. Because as human beings... To not be impacted by that kind of violence should make us question your humanity as opposed to the immediate criminalizing of our emotionality. 
Do you hear what I'm saying? That there has been a literal topsy-turvying kind of recycling of the language of violence. And so I hear us repeating the same mantras. And actually, it's that the language needs to be reimagined so that it more accurately addresses the way the violence breaks down. Because we see it again and again and again and again. I think Elisa Castile, Philando's sister, said it most powerfully when she said, it baffles me that anybody with human empathy could look at that, could look at those videos, and there were multiple, and conclude that you're not guilty. She literally said it baffles me because she talked about human empathy. And I think this is a question about humanity and what that looks like and what that doesn't become. Then my last point is about how we reimagine resistance. Of course, all year, The Spin has been doing reimagining resistance in this era of number 45. But we're talking about the kind of brutality that goes back so far, that goes back so far. And that the part of our resistance strategies, I feel like we really need to construct emotional health policy for black people dealing with this consistent cycle of violence and the democratization of being able to be witness to that violence because of social media. So although this happened last week, I literally was unable to do a show and discuss any of it. I was literally without language. And part of what I said to myself is that as working in this world of social justice, doing this world of emotional justice, part of the work we have to do is a real active caretaking in order to be able to ever come back to it and re-engage it and become coherent and find language and do this work. Because without that, that exhaustion you talk about, Brittany, like I think there's the, the power for it to devolve into other spaces because where is the outlet? Again, if you go back to the American Psychological Association and the way they define grief, grief had stages, but it's based on the loss of one person at one moment at one time, and then it's over. And because it's over, you get to go through a whole series of stages, part of which is closure. When we go through these names within a series of days, death upon death upon death upon death, so how do you get closure when the reality of the ways in which you're being killed has no end. We need a new language. We need new ways to recognize what it is we're walking through because it is beyond unimaginable. It is currently languageless. We haven't created language for it, but we have justifiable, natural human feelings about it. And what I say is that those that don't, it is time for me, for us, to question your humanity, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, yeah. folks don't respond to the to the reverse arguments particularly well. I mean, I think the thing that bothers me in this moment, Esther, is, is a point that I was making earlier. I don't know what we can say at this point to get, in particular, to get white Americans to really shift. There seems to be a, a digging in and a kind of polarization that feels new even for this moment. So I grew up in the 1990s in the Deep South in the U.S., and with this long history of racial animus that shapes growing up black in the Deep South, I feel like my white classmates during that era would say 
the racism our grandparents engaged in was wrong. Slavery was wrong. The racism of the civil rights era was wrong. And we're not interested in going back to that moment. And while I don't know that they were always fully honest about what that kind of anti-racist commitment would look like in the day-to-day, they did seem to be at least morally clear that the ways black people were treated in particular eras was wrong. But now we're living in a moment where folks who really supported segregation, people like Jeff Sessions, who was deemed too racist in the 1980s to have a cabinet position to be nominated for a federal judgeship in the 1980s, now is the attorney general. And so there is a real digging in based upon white fear. And that means that, you know, it's a conversation that you and I have had, Esther, that's about the difference between facts and frames. And so there is a real narrowing of the frames of possibility in this moment that make it hard. So what I see black people doing is talking about facts and talking about how to get more evidence. And so that was the conversation around body cameras. Maybe if we had more angles of video, then there's less room for doubt. Now we see that even with really clear video that Officer Yanez murdered Philando Castile, that given the frames that many white Americans work with, they still, they fit that horrendous video evidence into the existing frame that they have. And so until we can figure out how to explode people's frames, then all that's happening is that white people are, you know, digging in and saying, y'all are taking over and we want to go back to a moment where we're sure about our place. And you're right that the structural emotionality of that desire is driving everything. And so in that way, black people feel, it feels like we're sitting ducks for whatever kind of racial terror white folks want to enact. And very often having that kind of analysis feels not particularly empowering, but disempowering because the history of the U.S. is such that we know that white people often enact horrendous reigns of terror for hundreds of years at a time, and then we get like a decade or two of respite, and then they start again. And that is what it feels like is happening. And so Mm -hmm. trying to figure out when you say reimagining resistance, how to find joy in the struggle, when what you really want to do is wild out on folks because you recognize that reason isn't working. And so, you know, when you're having a moral calculation about how to respond, sometimes I don't know how to always arrive at the the notion that we should be reasonable because very often I feel like I just want to get unreasonable. I just want to scream off folks. I just want to cuss people out. I just want to tell them that I think that so many of them are absolute terrorists because of their dishonesty around the fact that what they really want is a world of clear white supremacy and clear white dominance, and they don't care how many black bodies they have to rack up in order to do it. And white people don't think that that's any challenge to their notion of humanity, because the way that white people have defined humanity has always been predicated on the notion that other human beings are less human than they are. Mm -hmm. And those truths feel really hard to hold in this moment without then showing the hell out all the time. You know, I I feel absolutely enraged when I think about it because none of the tools that I feel like I have at my disposal seem to be able to move the lever at any level. And I think that's the point. And I think that's part of what the relanguaging requires. I think it's every official, every commentator, every speculator who does that kind of call to calm, that that should be rejected and resisted. The part of structural emotionality, part of the recognition of grief is you may need to while out to remind yourself that you're human yourself, to remind yourself that you can feel 
because the assault is unrelenting. And I don't know that there's anything that can be done in terms of white supremacy's insistence on creating a frame that literally rewrites reality. I don't know that there's any frame. I don't know that trying to or figuring out ways to have people come to the realization of your humanity does anything more than make you crazy. So what I'm inviting us to consider is that with the full knowledge of that and all the cycles and the economies of violence that it creates, can we explore something else? Because this ish does not work for us it doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for us. You don't get to grieve honestly. If anger is a part of your grief, then why would wiling out be any kind of an issue? Because it should be within even the mainstream structure and idea of what it means to grieve. But the mainstreaming of extremism, like Sessions was an extremist. We've seen the rise and rise of white diaspora violence. The mainstreaming of what was once marginal, what was once extremist, means that we're in another moment. That motion in terms of whiteness, what does that mean for us in terms of global blackness? What motion do we do? Because it's like a huge boulder moving towards you and cramming you in. You have to get out. How? What other things can we think about to move for ourselves, for our emotional health and for our lives, for our literal, literal lives? Yes, 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 yes. To all of this, I'm really committed to I have the right to defend myself, my family and my community. So when I think about reshaping violence, responding with anger, responding with, with, with resistance to a militarized state is actually a healthy response for me and my community to do anything other is I feel like psychological terrorism. And then I'm I am very in tune at times and less in tune other times at the impact that not having spaces to grieve and not having a consistent collective emotional justice practices having. So the anxiety, the sleepless nights, the chronic headaches, the inability to have language to express how I feel, how and I'm in conversation with other folks that are experiencing this is inhibiting my ability to envision a liberatory future. So I want to be engaging in conversations and holistic practices, whether that is, what are the plants that we need to be engaging with in the herbs and the healing? What is the uh, the aspects of our culture that we want to use to allow us to, to grieve? I often think, what would it be like to just bring people together just for the purpose of wailing, to be able to exhale and express in with our voices or with our bodies the anguish and the pain that is contemporary and current in this moment, but it's also generational for the purposes of healing. But also, I cannot vision a future because trauma has me in survival mode. And my decision-making, how I engage people, how I experience violence in and amongst us, I'm participating in it and I'm being a recipient of it, is being heightened because of the way trauma is working. So this piece that you're talking about, about emotional reckoning, emotional justice, and around the grieving process, I think is essential for us to be able to reimagine a future. And I'm not saying that we're not doing good work, that we're not doing amazing, brilliant, joyful things. And I'm really curious about what else could be possible if this was not the chronic frame and if my, my defense was not up with against white supremacy and violence within communities. So I, I need uh, healing circles. I need spaces to wail. I need spaces of healing touch, of healthy touch, right? Just to even massage out what I know about trauma to massage where it rests 
in my body where it rests in our bodies. I need healing foods. I need stories of liberation. I need stories of laughter. I need stories of grief, right? I need examples of it's okay to wail, that I don't always have to be characterizing these myths about what it means to be black and woman or black and girl or just black. To hear that Charlena Lyles and Philando Castile were the 451st and second people killed by the police turns lives into numbers, turns black people, black women, black men into numbers. Instead, when it comes to these trials and acquittals, we say their names. Philando Castile, no conviction. Terence Crutcher, no conviction. Sandra Bland, no conviction. Eric Garner, no conviction. Mike Brown, no conviction. Rakia Boyd, no conviction. We say your name. Sean Bell, no conviction. Tamir Rice, no conviction. Freddie Gray, no conviction. Dan Roy Henry, no conviction. Oscar Grant III, no conviction. Kendrick McDade, no conviction. We say your name. Ayana Stanley Jones, no conviction. Ramali Graham, no conviction. Amadou Diallo, no conviction. Trayvon Martin, no conviction. John Crawford III, no conviction. Jonathan Farrell, no conviction. Timothy Stansbury Jr., no conviction. None of those names are numbers. They are loved ones and daughters and sons. They are brothers and friends. They were not lost. They were taken. They were stolen. They were mowed down in violence. That was the spin roll call of those lives taken, those futures stolen, with no accounting and no conviction. So that blue badge calling 911 may mean protection and safety for many in white America. It meant something else for Philando Castile. It meant something else for Shalina Lyles. Both dead due to this sound. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the That was part one of Trials, Traumas, and Tribulations, Injustice and Brutality in America. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women-of-color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Brittany Cooper and Monica Dennis. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, New York, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to the Spin One podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. One mic, one hour, three 
black women. And we go global. We keep it fly. Global black women honor the smart because smart is sexy. And sometimes with all the hate and hurt and harm in this world, you have got to ask. Jazzy B, soul to soul, you tell it. Now what's the meaning of the line? Tell me. Well, it's like dreaming of your goals, ambitions. I'm feeling free. I'm on this mission to achieve. Achieve what? What's in your mind's eye? This is what you believe you should gain. Uh-huh. Satisfaction become a shining example. A test as a sample of a new race. A example to buy positivity. You mean flow? Well, like electricity. So, you see a clear way with no ambiguity. Don't you know? Time for part two of Trials, Traumas, and Tribulations, Injustice in America. Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. Performer. Comedian. Television star. Philanthropist. Rapist. He has been accused by 50 plus, I think it's nearly 60 women now, of drugging them and rape. He was on trial, accused of the drugging and sexual assault of Andrea Constant. And the jury deliberated for 52 hours. They came back deadlocked. They went away again and came back deadlocked a second time. The judge declared a mistrial. It was apparently the longest deliberation in the history of Montgomery County. Post the trial verdict, Bill Cosby's lawyers faced the cameras and had this to say. Today was very important. We have worked very hard to present a case to this court, to this jury, to these 12 people who worked tirelessly to listen. This is what happens. Juries are stuck. When a prosecutor seeks to put someone in prison for things that are simply not presented in the courtroom. And the jury stuck to what they were asked to do, and that is to review the evidence before them. And there simply wasn't enough. His second lawyer, who delivered closing arguments, spoke about what he called, quote, a tremendous court system. This court system was tremendous. Um, The people of Pittsburgh that came here and deliberated long and hard uh, over days, 52 hours of deliberations. The judge is right. Justice is real. It lives here in Montgomery County. I'm proud to have been uh, able to represent Mr. Cosby. We came here looking for uh, an acquittal, but like that Rolling Stone song says, uh, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes you get what you need. A publicist for Mrs. Camille Cosby, Bill Cosby's wife, read a signed statement, part of which was as follows. How do I describe the district attorney? Heinous, how do I describe many, but not all, general media, blatantly vicious entities that continually disseminated intentional omissions of truth for the primary purpose of greedily selling sensationalism at the expense of a human life? Historically, people have challenged injustices. I am grateful to any of the jurors who tenaciously fought to review the evidence, which is the rightful way to make a sound decision. Ultimately, that is a manifestation of justice based on facts, not lies. One juror gave an interview to Variety and allegedly said the following quote. Let's face it, she, as in Andrea Constant, went up to his house 
with a bare midriff and incense and bath salts. What the heck? Unquote. This particular juror also said Cosby had, quote, paid dearly, unquote, and that there should not be a retrial. Another juror, 21-year-old Bobby Dugan, spoke to ABC News and initially believed Cosby was not guilty too. Evidence changed that to a belief that Cosby was guilty. But he also said that more substantive evidence might have led to a conviction. Listen. I've had, like, regret when we came to the final deadlock decision, and it kind of has been eaten in my mind. This could all be said and done. I thought he was guilty. Do you think there was something that could have happened differently to change the outcome? Evidence. If there is other evidence, more substantial evidence, we would have had a better verdict. Can you say what one particular strong point was that made you think, boy, he's guilty? He said himself, I think it was in a 2005 deposition, when they were asking him, would you use the word consent? He said, I want to use that word. And then there were the comments from the legal team of the women fighting for justice. His attorney, Gloria Allred, who represented some of the women who accused Bill Cosby of rape. We can never underestimate the blinding power of celebrity, but justice will come. I hope that the prosecution will try this case again and that the next time the court will permit more prior bad act witnesses to testify as the prosecution had requested for this trial. For the trial that just ended, the court only allowed one such prior bad act witness to testify, and that was my client, Kelly Johnson. Rather than the 13 such witnesses which the prosecution wanted to call. If the court allows more accusers to testify next time, it might make a difference. In other words, it's too early to celebrate, Mr. Cosby. Round two may be just around the corner. And this time, justice may prevail. After the mistrial, Stories emerged that Cosby would be doing a town hall tour on sexual assault prevention. Now, apparently Bill Cosby has shot down that story. However, his publicist continues to talk about a quote-unquote tour. So let's talk notions of guilt. This thing called evidence. Who is really on trial on this case and in these cases and the cancerous power of celebrity? Monica Dennis, your thoughts. Just the, the, the foolishness that he would even consider going on tour. So, you know, historically, this is a man who has created one public profile in the media of being America's dad, a palatable black man that people could humanize and see as their own father, that created an aspirational character as Cliff Huxtable and the Huxtable family, that black people could somehow see that as aspirational. Here is a humanized public figure, and to be a sexual predator and terrorist in his own life is very maddening. And then to be engaging, like he's a history, again, the, the, the way that who he is is different from his public profile and our inability to separate those two, I think, has been undergirding the, the chronic disbelief that people have about whether or not this could be true about Bill Cosby when 60 plaintiffs, 
60 people have come forward to say that they have been sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby. How much more is needed? And then I think about the way in which he's used that public profile as America's dad, as someone upstanding, as someone who's a philanthropist in black communities in American culture, who's participated and contributed to changing how America sees, or white people, quite frankly, see black people then uses that that public profile to commit, to, to kind of shelter and commit these heinous crimes, all the while actually having an ideology about black families and about black people that is pathological, particularly the black poor. So uh, troping and stereotypes, if we ch- about changing our names and pulling up our pants and acting in ways that are respectable, so really engaging in a respectability politic that then allows people to start defending him. I also think that there's something to just the history of black masculinity in the United States that created a block within black communities to be able to actually wrestle with what he'd actually done. So there are so many conversations on social media and communities and the barbershops and the beauty salons about he couldn't have done it. He could not have engaged in being a, a sexual predator, a sexual terrorist, because white America has the system rigged against black men, right? So that is true. We know that there is a predisposition, that there is uh, embedded inequity against black people, against black men within the United States, and Bill Cosby can still have committed all of this sexual terror. So both things can be true, and our inability as a nation, as people, to split the two is working against this. So I'm offended, quite frankly, that he would go on, that even the notion of going on tour, I'm offended by it. I think we have so far to go in understanding what happens to survivors of sexual assault, what happens to people who don't survive sexual assault, that this really is offensive, hurtful, damaging, and re-traumatizing, and that there is a you know, that he has the actual wealth and public cachet to do this is just deeply offensive. Dr. Brittany Cooper? I think it's really perverse, the kinds of things that they want to talk about on this tour. So when I read up on the tour, his spokespeople are saying things like, we want to help young men to know about sexual assault because now you can even be charged with sexual assault just for touching somebody's shoulder. So it's very clear that the tour that they're trying to go on is not one that's about empowering young men to stop raping, but rather about scapegoating women who make rape accusations and and telling young men that they need to protect themselves because the world is out to get them. And that is not only insidious and perverse, it is also deeply evil and racially unjust. I'm disgusted by Bill Cosby. I think that's really important to say as someone who grew up watching and loving the Cosby show in real time, watching and loving a different world in real time. And even though I've been up the Cosby show in terms of my watching a different world is a a bit of a harder thing because like many people I was really introduced to the fun and excitement and community of historically black colleges and universities because of that show it certainly influenced some of my decision to want to attend an HBCU so Bill Cosby has been really pivotally important but I'm also calling on black men to stop being dishonest about the kinds of violence that brothers do in community so racism can no longer be used as an excuse for sexism, and very often it has, that we can't call out black men for engaging in sexual violence, particularly against black women, because the system and the man are out to get them. And so a lot of black men who 
touted this line about how Bill Cosby is the victim of a, a sort of kind of conspiracy, what I've said to them is you actually ought to be angrier at Bill Cosby than being angry at his accusers, because Bill Cosby is well aware of the myth of the black male rapist and of these myths and mythographies around black male violence. And he chose over the course of 50 years to consistently engage in acts that reinforce those stereotypes when he was well aware of the level of damage that they would do to communities. Not to mention the fact that we don't have to, in the name of racism, support black folks who do unrepentant and vile and reprehensible forms of violence to other folks, even when those people are white people. And so this feels like a kind of um, moral equivocation that I'm not used to seeing uh, from black folks, because typically we're clear that wrong is wrong, and rape is always wrong. But so, so that's part of this, is that black men are using racism as a cloak for their sexism. But there is also the sense that, that men are entitled to women's bodies. So when I look at the jury accounts of the trial, much of the deliberation was split down the middle between men and women. And a male juror came out and said, well, you know, she went to his house with a, with a midriff top on. What did she expect? Well, what are y'all talking about? The sort of the, 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 the view that women are signing up for sex because they want to show a little bit of skin is completely retrograde thinking, and yet so many men persist in this narrative. And so, you know, I'm deeply disturbed by Cosby. I echo Monica on the fact that he has been on this Black Respectability World Tour since 2004, and it is deeply offensive. And he's not even riding for the kind of brothers that are out here riding for him. And so it's very shocking to me that they would continue to sort of uphold him when it is so clear that he's a monster and that we should call him that and that he should be dealt with accordingly. The last thing that I want to say about this, though, is I'm also bothered by the sort of sophistry and equivocation of arguing that when the jury doesn't convict Philando Castile's murderer, then the system is rigged. But when the jury doesn't convict Bill Cosby, it's a mark of his innocence. When did black people come to believe that decisions by juries were markers of the innocence of perpetrators? We can't have it both ways. The system that is racist is also sexist, and the fact that mm -hmm. black men occasionally get away with violent crimes doesn't mean that they are, in fact, innocent. And so we can talk about our desire for some of our brothers to just get off sometimes, even though they've done terrible things, without saying that we don't actually believe that they committed the crimes that they're accused of. And let O.J. Simpson be our shining example of that. There is also this particular connection for me between the ways we think about sexual violence and police brutality towards black bodies. And by that, I mean that when police officers say I was in fear of my life, so therefore you being dead is your fault. It is the equivalent to me of men saying, well, you wore a short skirt or you showed your midriff and you got raped. So that's your fault. There is a way in which we have learned to language culpability when it comes to violence and, and create these really dangerous connections between the two. When I think about this notion of evidence and I listen to what the jurors said, my point is 60 women said he did something. 60 women said he did something. And none of those 60 you want to believe. I'm saying even if I give you that, in his deposition... He said the same thing. 
in Cosby's deposition, he said the same thing. So that when it comes to sexual violence, there seems to be no narrative in which folk are willing to find men culpable of committing sexual violence against women's bodies. I think when you then put black women's bodies into the equation, it exacerbates the whole situation a gazillion fold. But I feel like the ways in which toxic masculinity and toxic black masculinity function is that even in the admission of the violence, we are engaged in finding spurious arguments to justify what is not just patently unjustifiable, but what has already been conceded has actually been done. Like, seriously. And how is it we are so clear? We are able to bring this clarity to issues of racism. But when you mix toxic masculinity and sexism and patriarchy into that particular space, then it's grey in the worst way imaginable, that what was actually clear becomes murky. So that it makes me wonder, what kind of justice can there ever be for the survivors of sexual violence in that world? How do you ever shape or make that? I'm going to take your closing thoughts before I go. I think the point is, the theme of this, you know, our conversations today is that we just have to keep fighting for justice and believing that it will prevail. I think that one argument that we can continue to make for black men that they seem to really get after Trayvon Martin was that what a person wears in public is never a justification for the violence that others choose to do to them. And so I think that that has to be a reminder. But I think it's also the thing that you have taught me over and over again, Esther, which is that we have to deal with black men in particular with their emotions around how they are cast in public because that's shaping so much of their response. And we also have to have a safe way for some of these brothers who have in fact committed sexual violence of their own to acknowledge that that is what they have done and to acknowledge that they have grown up in a patriarchal world where they have gotten the wrong narratives about how to engage women consensually and that that needs to change. And I think that there's the ability to do that work, but it's going to require some hard and honest conversations. The point is that we have to do that labor because no woman is safe as long as men in general go around feeling like they are entitled to women's bodies and feeling like there is no possibility that they're victimizing women on a regular basis. That's a story that has to change. And I do think that there are key men that we can sort of engage in our communities who can help us to shift and change those narratives. Part of what we need to learn is that emotional labor when it comes to black liberation and black revolution that we have intimate revolutions as well as the social justice ones. And those intimate revolutions are about doing the kind of emotional labor that makes us safer for each other and to each other. And that black men are not being discarded for being required to engage in a kind of emotional labor that could be transformative. But what they have to be clear about is they cannot discard the voices of sexual violence survivors in order to avoid engaging that labor. The labor is necessary for all of us. It is not necessarily the same for all of us, but it is necessary because all of the revolution is not the same. And intimate revolution matters. It does. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Brittany Cooper and Monica Dennis. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. The Spin, it's your hour of global talk where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther 
I'm out. Just cop me properly. Everybody send policy. Universal equality. Responsibility policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically. Fruits of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your policy. Intellectual property. Stealing stolen commodities. So is controlling robbery. Cold lack of commodity. Clones, copycats, bother me. Mine on black that's follow me. Honestly, honestly, honestly. All these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's smoking the time. See you looking, but you better take, take it, it easy. easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take, take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.